ignition switches. On. RPM switches. Set. TD switches. Normal. Doors and hatches. Closed. Lay down. Strobe light. On. Restart check is complete. Clear left. Engineer. Start number two. Starting two. Wing 31010, pilot project podcast. Clear takeoff from Wing 31 left. All right, we're ready for departure here at the Pilot Project Podcast, the best source for stories and advice from the pilots of the RCAF, brought to you by Skies Magazine and RCAF Today. I am your host, Brian Morrison. With me today is my buddy, Paul Goddard. Paul, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. Before we start, let's go over Paul's bio. Paul completed pilot training in 2015 and was posted to Triple Four Squadron in Goose Bay, Labrador, flying the CH-146 Griffin in a combat support role. Over three years, Paul flew about 500 hours, including tactical first officer training, SAR conversion training, the Mud Lake Labrador evacuation, Op Lentis and Kamloops VC, and a small handful of JRCC task missions, JRCC being Joint Rescue Coordination Center. Paul was then posted to Greenwood, Nova Scotia, where he was finally able to live with his wife, Michaela, and fly the CH-149 Cormorant at 413 Transport and Rescue Squadron. Over five years, Paul flew a little over 1,000 hours and completed the upgrade process to SAR Aircraft Commander. During Paul's time in the Air Force, he has been a Deputy Squadron Operations Officer, President and Vice President of the Combined Mess Committee, Unit Flight Safety Officer, and Pilot Section Scheduler. Paul is currently posted to 3CFFTS, where he is training to become a Qualified Flight Instructor on the CT-139 Jet Ranger and teach Phase 2 and 3 Rotary. Today, we will be focusing on his time flying the Cormorant in Greenwood, Nova Scotia. Okay, so Paul, we'll start with our standard first question. Where did aviation start for you? Like many of your guests on the show, I was an air cadet. So I uh, joined when I was 12, did glider, was unable to do power because I went to RMC instead and the timeline wasn't going to work out on that. After that, it was just military flying. So phase one in between uh, third and fourth year at RMC and then uh, phase two right afterwards. And I got really lucky and ended up moving up a cohort because there was a guy who needed to take some leave for personal reasons. And I ended up in his slot and he came in, in my slot basically for phase three. Okay. So that worked out really well. Nice. So like a lot of us, you got a strong start in air cadets. I did. Yeah. Were you previously interested in aviation or did that kind of spark by going to air cadets? Yes, both. I think that it started a little bit before that. Like I always kind of wondered what I wanted to be when I grew up and I chose not to instead, <laughs> but, uh, the air cadet thing really cemented it for me that I wanted to be a pilot and that I wanted to do that professionally, not just as a hobby. Mm -hmm. And realizing that I'm wearing glasses, your viewers can't see that, but realizing that my eyes were going to be good enough because they, uh, they changed the standard the year before I was looking to apply. Mm -hmm. And I would have been able to get in under the gold standard anyway, as it turned out. But that perceived barrier was going to have kept me from applying to the Air Force. So when that changed, I didn't self-select out and I ended up just throwing my name in the hat and here I am. Yeah, that's great. It's such a good program. There's just so many of us that got our start that way. And it's how many people do you meet in their teams that they're like, okay, this is the career I'm going to do. And then they actually follow through with that. And it, it becomes, you know, they live the dream. I think it's a really neat thing. Yeah. And some of the skills that you learn there are foundational, right? Like that ability to see an end goal and keep doing every little step it takes along the way to get there mm -hmm. over such a long period of time, like that focus and that discipline, I really credit to my time in air cadets. 
Yeah, well, even before you go to Glider, you have to do flying scholarship that year. You have to go to the classes every week. And I started that when I was 13. Yeah. In preparation for applying to go to this scholarship when I was going to be 15 turning 16, right? Yeah. Before the year I actually made it, I did another year of basically prep work. Yeah. Like I've been working towards this since I was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. I went to Glider when I was 17. So yeah, it's a very strong foundation. How did you find your flight training experience in the forces? It was good. Very stressful. When I went through phase one, it was very much a selection course. Mm -hmm. When I went through phase two, there were so many students. There were, I think, three or four courses in-house ahead of me. And then by the time I was leaving, again, three or four courses behind me. And I had a great group on my course in my cohort, but on the whole, it seemed like the environment was very, very competitive in mm -hmm. like a, I want to get what I want out of this selection sort of thing. But I got lucky in that the great group of guys and girls that I went through with all wanted a variety of different cockpits to fly in. And so and you, everyone ended up being able to get their first choice because our course director was very active in making swaps forwards and backwards ahead and behind our courses in order to make the math work out. Mm -hmm. So because enough of us wanted the various three streams, we all ended up getting the first stream that we wanted. It's interesting how based on people's personalities, a course can be like you know, we've always stressed that aviation is a team sport. It is. But a lot of people, especially in the early stages, don't realize that. And they're like, I have to look out for number one. It's interesting how much better of an experience it is when you have people who realize this is the time to come together. Yeah. And just the group banding together as a group and taking the time to be people and not just coworkers and not just people in competition for various slots. Like if you get to know the guy who's sitting next to you in class and you guys study together, you're going to build each other up. It can only go positively if you're all lifting each other together. Yeah, absolutely. So you got selected for the Griffin, but now fly the Cormorant. Was the Cormorant the end goal? And how did you feel when you were selected for Griffins? Yeah, so I knew that it was coming. Um, I said, I want to fly the Cormorant. And the course director said, no slots this year. They're all gone. Okay. Okay. That sucks, but that's life. Yeah. And so I was happy to go to Goose Bay and get into a yellow helicopter, knowing that that would keep the door open to someday being a Cormorant pilot. And even if that didn't happen, then maybe I would end up going into uh, Trenton and flying primary search and rescue with the Griffin instead of doing primary search and rescue on the Cormorant. So I viewed going to Goose Bay as a bit of an adventure. It was a temporary thing. Like every posting in the military, you're going to be there for as long as you're there. And then when you're gone, you're on to something else. So make the best of it. Mm -hmm. Enjoy the time you have while it's in front of you. And if you go in thinking you're going to have a bad time, I guarantee you will. Yeah. I mean, that's become such a theme for this show. The most successful people are the ones who can be happy anywhere and they can find the bright side of a posting that wasn't exactly what they hoped for or getting a cockpit that wasn't what they hoped for. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are the people who love their job no matter what. For sure. So you mentioned Goose Bay and kind of making the best of that, looking at it as an adventure. It's pretty isolated. How did you find your time up there? It was a bit of a mixed bag. There were parts of it that were really frustrating and there were parts of it that were slightly difficult personally. We made reference in my bio to living separately from Michaela. We weren't married at the time that I went up there. She was still finishing up her uh, navigator training, her AXO training, and then made it over onto the Aurora and Greenwood. So at least we ended up in the same time zone, but all of the free time leave-wise and all of the free money ended up being spent on Air Canada to <laughs> make the trip down. So mm -hmm. uh, that worked out well that way. 
But the Great Outdoors up there is so much bigger. Labrador, the nickname for it is the Big Land, and it's it's called that for a reason, right? Like it's six hours on what is now a paved road to get to Labrador City from Goose Bay. And there's Churchill Falls in the middle, but that's basically a gas stop and a hydroelectric dam and the supporting economy that has been built up around that community for those reasons. So in order to get to Canadian Tire, in order to get to Walmart, in order to get to Sushi, you got to do the six-hour drive one way. Wow. And then do the six-hour drive back the other way. So if you're looking for amenities, you're not going to find that in Goose Bay. I like to tell people when they ask me, you know, it's got everything you need. It does not have everything you want by a long shot. Mm -hmm. So people who have younger families who go up there and are like a really cohesive unit end up having a good time because they spend a lot of time outside. They spend a lot of time in the community with the other military families. The other thing that's unique about Goose Bay is the fact that you have to live on the base. So if you're a single person, you have the option, I guess, if you want to live in the shacks and eat in the mess and do the regular thing like that. But the PMQs are also available and that's basically where everyone ends up. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, it's a very close-knit community. When I was up there, mess life was very strong and there was a really good culture of going out and seeing everyone and just being social on a Friday night. And so those two things make it easier to build a community because the community is all here and you already have something immediately in common. Even if the person across the street from me is an MP, NCM, I can relate to them in a way that maybe lots of people wouldn't choose to relate to each other if they knew that I was in the military and they were a local. I was going to be here for three years. They've been there for 30. They're going to mm -hmm. be there for 30 more, right? So that sense of adventure that everyone brings up to Goose Bay with them is what makes it such a great military community, in my opinion. Yeah, it is really neat how those smaller postings that a lot of people look at as maybe undesirable are actually the places that have the strongest community mm -hmm. just by necessity and by the nature of having a small location. For sure. And that said, like I wouldn't recommend Goose Bay to everyone, but I would recommend Goose Bay to anyone who was looking at that and thinking it might be fun mm -hmm. because it is. But if you're not interested in going there and having a good time, like I said, you, you won't. So what exactly does the Cormorant do? We haven't covered it on the show yet, but we also have the Hercules and the SAR community. How do their roles differ? I'm going to back up a bit and talk about the SAR system. Sure. So there's three different regions in Canada. The one that I participated in is the uh, Atlantic Search and Rescue Region, which is coordinated by the Joint Regional Coordination Center in Halifax. And they receive distress signals, either it's from the folks in Trenton who uh, get the satellite downlink, or it's from the Coast Guard receiving a mayday call, or whether it's from an area control unit receiving a mayday call or being relayed a mayday call in some cases, or whether it's from a provincial police force, whether it be the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary or whether it's uh, the RCMP or whether it's the Sûreté uh, de Those are the main folks who feed into the Joint Regional Coordination Center. And from there, they make decisions on who and what to task. Okay. They get a lot of calls every year. Some of those calls end up going to air assets to prosecute the mission in terms of we're going to go out and either do a medevac off of a boat, or we're going to search for a lost hunter, or we're going to do lines over the water looking for someone who fell in. Those sorts of tasks are what we tend to end up with. 
Every once in a while, we also end up with what we call humanitarian tasks. So the Lost Hunter would be an example of that, where the provincial police find themselves in a situation they aren't resourced to deal with. Another example would be if someone was hiking and they needed an evacuation medically, but the provincial response was going to be inadequate to the situation. We would go and do that. Okay. We being the federally responsive SAR system, whether it's an Air Force asset or whether it's a, a Coast Guard asset. Okay. From there, if you're tasking air asset, the Hercules is higher, faster, has longer endurance, longer range than the Cormorant does. They're your search platform. And so traditionally, you have Sartex in the back that are trained and equipped to parachute out of the back of the platform to go and render aid to people on the ground until such time as they can be extracted and people can be stabilized in place and then evacuated by other means because right. you can't evacuate people out of the middle of the bush using a Hercules. Right. And Sartex being our search and rescue technicians. That's right. Yeah. So they come from other trades after a period of time in the forces already. So it's a what we call a remuster trade. And they come with a set of experiences and receive a set of training after going through selection that prepares them to provide medical and survival aid to individuals in the least hospitable areas and environments of our country. Yeah. They're amazing people. They're... Yeah. If you meet them, they're so, so impressive and they can, they can do anything. And working with them every day keeps a pilot humble. Yeah, no doubt. If you'd like to know more about search and rescue technicians or SARTEX, this is a great time for a shout out for my friend Dylan Weller's podcast, The SARTake. That's the S-A-R take. Dylan is a great guy and he's one of our SARTEX in the Royal Canadian Air Force. Yeah. So those are the people that we are delivering to a scene. And so... The other thing that a Hercules can do for a cormorant is provide top cover. So when you have someone who's on a ship out 200, 250 miles offshore and needs to be off of that ship faster than they would be able to if they were just steaming to shore, that's like a 25-hour trip if a ship is making 10 knots, right? That's some reasonably simple math with some average speeds and assuming a bunch of things go right. That's your best case scenario. So if someone's having a heart attack, that's it, man. Mm -hmm. They need help a lot faster than that. So that's when you send your cormorant to go out and extract the patient from the vessel. So we go out and we insert a SARTEC into a situation, whether it's like I just described on a vessel, whether it's on top of a mountain, whether it's in the middle of a field or a swamp. And a lot of the time we're doing that by hoist. And then we will extract the patient, usually in a rescue basket if they're ambulatory or in a Stokes litter if they're not and then retrieve the SARC-Tech as well at the same time, and then get them to emergency medical care, whether that's in the form of an ambulance at an airport, or whether that's setting them down at an airport and just leaving them be because they didn't require any sort of medical assistance, but the situation they were in was going to deteriorate to the point where eventually they would. Mm. And so we go and we do the rescue part of search and rescue is basically what it boils down to. Okay. So... To really simplify what you just said, the Herc is the search portion typically, and the Cormorant is typically the rescue portion when you're dividing up search and rescue. Right. And there's large amounts of overlap too, right? So when the Hercules is doing top cover, they're participating in the rescue by acting as a comms platform. They find us wins on the way home. They've saved me needing to refuel twice to get home. Mm -hmm. uh, Drop in flares for illumination. That's huge. That's a game changer. And we can get into that more detail a little bit later if you want to. Sure. 
And for searching, the cormorant is capable and allowed to fly a lot lower and a lot slower than Hercules can. So we overlap search areas as the search master will dictate in order to provide the right kind of coverage in the right areas. Okay. It's complex. It's hugely complex. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of moving pieces. Yeah. What is the training and upgrade process like for a cormorant pilot? Nominally, you have two years from when you arrive on squadron to become a fully mission capable SAR AC, which means that you have to hit the ground running. So you start out coming off of the OTF in Comox, go to your home unit, whether that's uh, in Comox or in Greenwood or in Gander, and then you are a FO1. So you start basically being trusted to learn and to keep the blue side up on the AI and to be as helpful as you're capable of being in any given moment. But you're just there to soak it all in, get better at flying, and learn how to eventually become that AC. I just want to break in for a couple acronyms there. Yeah, go for it. OTF is Operational Training Flight. FO, First Officer. AC is Aircraft Commander. And AI is Attitude Indicator. Sorry for that. (laughs) It's okay. We speak in acronyms. Yeah, it's alphabet soup over here. That's why I'm here. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, from there, you'd become an FO2. And at that point, you've gotten the blessing from standards to fly night boats with just any AC, as opposed to needing to do other training and standards. That's the most challenging thing that we do as a night boat. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit later again, referencing back to the flares. But that's that stage of your training is just getting good at that stuff. While you are an FO2, that's your opportunity to continue and get really good at flying the aircraft. And you need to be really good at flying the aircraft so that you don't have to think about that while you're trying to think about the mission. There's no brain space to do both at once. And so then after that, you become a FO3, potentially at the same time, but not necessarily at the same time. You can become a utility AC. So you would be allowed then to do ferry flights, example, between Gander and Greenwood doing a tail swap. You can do that Mm -hmm. between uh, Greenwood and Comox. I did that as a utility AC. There were three of us pilots on that crew, along with an FE and a couple IMP techs. And we were, again, just doing a tail swap. But while you are an FO3, you are acting as an AC during simulated and potentially if you have the opportunity and things work out well in terms of luck and the level of complexity of the mission versus your level of ability at that given moment, you might be the acting AC on an actual task mission. And then after that, you go through your upgrade trip. There's build up to this in terms of uh, like RONs. RON stands for remain overnight simulated taskings, running training days yourself. And at the end of it, someone comes out from uh, SARSET. SARSET is search and rescue standards evaluation and training. And sits in the jump seat and you and an FO2 or better sit together in the front and make all of the decisions and do all of the flying in order to demonstrate your competence and run those scenarios through to completion And if they're happy with the fact that you are safe and effective and efficient enough, then you will be granted the SAR AC category, and then you can take the crew out and do SAR. Wow. So that's a pretty involved upgrade process. Yeah, it is. And historically, it hasn't happened in two years. Mm -hmm. That's honestly too much. And, you know, 
pros and cons to needing to write almost every single pilot and extension, right? If you think that this is something that the person's capable of, and it seems like this is going to be, you know, achievable, why not do the paperwork? Mm -hmm. But the counterpoint to that is you shouldn't have to do that paperwork for 80% of the pilots that are going through. Mm -hmm. So there's room for improvement, but that's, that's the policy that we're left with right now. Yeah. And it's a little above our pay grade. But, exactly. Yeah. You know, those are things that they hopefully polish over time. Exactly. And things are improving as well. Like the binder mm -hmm. that you need to complete has evolved and it's creating a situation now where people are better trained. And recently we upgraded a SRAC with less than 500 hours on type. And I credit that to their ability as an individual, a highly competent young man. And he's also been given these opportunities that were very prescribed and laid out at the right intervals. And I think that he is a sign of the success of the system mm. and the fact that it is evolving in the correct direction. We're seeing that people are getting less and less flight time as we move towards simulation and a bunch of different factors. So it is important for those upgrade processes to become more and more efficient. Definitely. So we often ask what a normal day looks like, but in SAR, there are very few normal days. Can you tell us what the schedule is like at 413 Squadron? So there are a couple caveats to this, like you said, what is normal. Mm -hmm. um, but when you walk in in the morning, if you're on standby, you should expect that you're going to be liable starting when you first walk through the doors. And also before that, at five o'clock in the morning, you can get a call as early as then. And then at four o'clock in the afternoon, you can be released from JRCC, assuming there's been no tasking in that time. JRCC is the Joint Rescue Coordination Center. And then the night crew takes over. Okay. So at four o'clock in the afternoon, that's when, if you're on what we call slash, um, you've done your crew rest, you are at home on call, potentially going in on a night flight if that's what's on the, on the fly pro, and then liable completely overnight again, whether you're airborne on a night trainer or asleep at home on your own bed until five o'clock the next morning. Okay. That's when the day crew takes over. On the weekend, it's a little bit different. So there is a, a slash crew for the whole weekend effectively and a backup crew. So when you're on standby, historically you've been on RP30, so 30 minutes notice to launch. When you're on slash, you're on RP2, which is two hours notice to launch. And when you're on backup, you're on RP12, so 12 hours notice to launch. Okay. Those are airborne times. So coming along with that response posture requirement is a geographic restriction for where you can actually live. And uh, that's true at all of the SAR squadrons. So the, the larger geographic area for Greenwood, uh, if memory serves, goes all the way out eastbound to Windsor. That's right. Yeah. But for 413 Squadron, it only goes out as far as Berwick. So it's more restrictive in order to be able to meet that two hour time frame. That makes sense. Yeah. So if you're on standby, and it's a flying day. Usually you'll do two sorties, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. We like to get out and do lunch somewhere else in order to be able to stretch our legs, get out of the local area that we see all the time, especially at night. We see it all the time. And then it also affords us more opportunity to work with different boats. Our bread and butter of what we do for training largely revolves around, hey, can we get a boat? We try. So we're working with the Canadian Coast Guard and with the Coast Guard Auxiliary. And um, when we do boat camps, we also contract for boats sometimes okay. just to get a lot of variety to work in different conditions, work in different geographic areas of the SRR. What's the SRR? The search and rescue region. Okay. So SRR Atlantic encompasses all of the Atlantic provinces, all of Labrador, 
and a good chunk of eastern and northern Quebec. And I believe Quebec City is just outside and is in uh, SRR that's managed by Trenton as opposed to by Halifax. Okay. So as well, when you're doing an RON, so I remain overnight. So the aircraft doesn't go to bed in the hangar at home. It goes to bed somewhere else. And the crew will generally be sleeping in hotels in SAR. We'll get to that selling point in the future. <laughs> and we try to get very good spread out coverage of where we're going on those RONs in order that by the time you're in AC, you've seen most of the Southern SRR, which is where we do the vast majority of our calls to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then on a night trainer, usually you'll just do the one sortie and it'll be out to do a boat and then back all on the same tank of gas generally. Okay. Or land work again, really in a, a reasonably small circle around the airfield. Mm-hmm. And that's just probably doing some kind of confined area work yeah. at night. Yeah. Confined areas and hoisting really are the two big ones. Uh, sometimes we do airfield work. We tend to try not to do night circuits just to be good neighbors. If the weather is keeping us in Greenwood though, we end up doing a lot of confined areas in and around the airfield sometimes on a particular night. And the reason that Paul's saying they're trying to be good neighbors is I used to live in the PMQs in Greenwood. And when the cormorant goes over like your dishes are shaking in the cupboards. It's it's quite a powerful, loud aircraft. It is, yeah. I was doing circuits one night with a relatively junior FO, and the Facebook group for the neighborhood that I live in is right underneath downwind, and it was lighting up. And just uh, not understanding why we're doing what we're doing really triggers some people. Yeah. yeah. Well, you got to get the training in at That's the end it. of the day, right? You need to be competent and proficient. That's it. Yeah. And like I said, I do try to be a good neighbor and I believe that everyone at the squadron feels the same way. And um, when we can avoid it, we do avoid it. Mm-hmm. So what was the hardest part of the job when you started? It was realizing that you can't help everyone. Yeah. And finding the grace to give to myself that, you know, this is just not something that we can do tonight and trusting the AC was just doing everything that we could and Mm. and sitting there in the other seat for long enough you see that people are working hard to try and make things happen and when we do turn missions off it's not done lightly it's done for the safety of the crew and the safety of the aircraft one of the things that people say in sar is you shouldn't create a second emergency Mm -hmm. and that's true and you you have to learn that early on even though it is not always the easiest pill to swallow Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to go out, you want to help people, you want to save lives. And sometimes that just can't happen that night or that day for whatever reason. Yeah, I imagine that would be really tough. I've known SAR ACs who had to make that call yep. and it really weighs on them. It does. Absolutely. I'm fortunate not to have had that decision myself mm-hmm. to have to make that decision, but I've been part of a crew when we have decided not to go and there were good reasons. I've been part of a crew where we had to delay the mission and you always feel better about that. It's like we made the call, the safe call, and we went out later and managed to do it anyway. And that worked out well. So so when you're first struggling with this, how do you overcome that feeling? Um, you just sit with it really and sort of readjust the way that you look at the job. The job at the end of the day is bring home the crew. If you can bring home the aircraft, even better. If you can save a life, even better. But at the end of the day, if you haven't brought your crew home, you shouldn't have left. The Cormorant is an extremely capable aircraft, including outside of the SAR world. Can you tell us about some of these capabilities? 
Yeah, so it's quite a large aircraft. It's nicknamed the Flying School Bus, and for good reason. If you were to put the ramp down and if it were capable and uh, ignoring structural load issues, uh, if there weren't any seats in the back, I drive a Mazda 3. I can fold my mirrors in and drive it right up the back and park it in the cabin. It is huge. It's massive. And it's difficult to understand how large it is until you're standing beside it. Mm -hmm. And the downwash from it is substantial. It only has one disc. When you say disc, you mean the disc shape that is made by the rotor spinning. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it only has one main rotor system providing lift to the aircraft. And because it's so heavy and because the disc is reasonably small compared to its size, the downwash is substantial. Mm -hmm. When I'm trying to get the point across to people who were going to help and I'm telling the crew across the radio, you know, we have hurricane force downwash. That seems to get the message across well enough. But otherwise, like we've showed up to boats and they've had crab traps and lobster traps all over the top. They've had metal tables, which have been blown over before by crews. If it's not bolted down, it's leaving the deck. Mm -hmm. So it can lift a lot. It can carry a lot. It can go quite far for a helicopter. Its endurance is in the realm of five or six hours, depending on, oh, wow. yeah, depending on how much fuel you're able to take because of the payload. And it gets relied on for a lot of SAR-like things that are not necessarily SAR. So we spoke a little bit about it, the humanitarian missions already, but other things that it does is it assists with exercises undertaken by the NORAD community. So that's starting to happen more often where we're asked to preposition an asset in a part of the country where it isn't normally in order to be able to respond to a, a potential ejection if required. So almost using you in like a combat support role. Yeah, exactly. And that is going to become more prevalent, I believe, as the Sartex have been removed from combat support, and we are now using Medtex in that role instead. That's right. I forgot about that, but Vic mentioned when we did his interview that the role of combat support and SAR are in the midst of some adjustment right now. That's right. Yeah, I'm very good friends with one of the CEOs of a combat support unit, and they were telling me that the medtechs are exceedingly capable people, and they're very good at their jobs, and they are not given enough credit because they're not Sartex. And that's the only thing that people see, mm. is the reduction in the capability, where what we should be looking at instead is the fact that they do bring all of these things to the table that we just wouldn't have without them. Mm -hmm. So the other things that we do sometimes is uh, support other components of the Canadian forces. So there are people in the forces who do very demanding and kinetic activities that require the ability to be evac'd quickly and effectively if something were to go wrong. And especially in a maritime environment, one of the best tools for the job is a cormorant. So we will be asked sometimes to assist with those things. Okay. The cormorant is a fairly complex helicopter. Where do new pilots tend to struggle when they start on the cormorant? Energy management is something that you have to learn early on and you have to learn very well. And it's a huge step to move from a 412 to a cormorant. Mm. We're talking maximum gross weights of uh, 11,900 pounds for the Griffin versus 14,600 kilos or 15,600 kilos if you're taking a full fuel load on the Cormorant. So about triple what the Griffin can do. That's right, yeah. So we can take almost a Griffin worth of fuel <laughs> in the Cormorant. It's insane. So that 
aspect of energy management catches people off guard, especially in the early stages. So it's important to just take things slow, take things step by step. And you need to get good at flying the machine without needing to think about it that much in order to be able to later on do all the mission management. And that's where people will start to struggle is as they're handed those things. SAR is a messy, gray, non-linear tree of decisions that you need to make in order to affect an outcome. And it's always changing. Always changing. And that's one of the things that personally I struggled with is that I would have a really good plan and we would go and start to prosecute it and then things would change. Mm. And I wouldn't allow myself the flexibility to change my plan. Mm -hmm. And that very quickly got beaten out of me in the FO3 phase. But <laughs> when you're doing tabletop exercises, it's like, we're going to go and do this. And it's like, okay, cool. And then when you have to go and do it in an actual aircraft, you need to be reactive without being too reactive, if that makes sense. And yep. just allow the changing variables to feed into your decision-making loop and, and change your plan accordingly if it becomes able or necessary that you should do that. So it sounds like to me, you know, I always ask, you know, where do people struggle? And then the big question is, how can they overcome that? Right. It sounds like the only way to overcome this is experience. Practice, training, experience, chair flying, and giving yourself the grace to learn without beating yourself up about it. Yeah, that would be huge, especially when you were saying, you know, you started out fairly rigid in your planning. And it's hard when that doesn't work, when you have an idea of how things are going to go and then it doesn't go that way. That's right. That can be really demoralizing. Yeah. I mean, your plan has to change. It can be a great plan on the ground, but as soon as you get new information, you need to make a new plan. Mm -hmm. One thing I like that you've mentioned a couple of times is how important it is to learn to fly the aircraft really well, because eventually the whole point of it is to employ it in a mission. That's right. That's a big thing that is different about flying in the RCAF versus flying in the civilian world. If you're flying in the civilian world, in most roles, your job is to fly the aircraft. You're flying the aircraft to fly something from A to B. So your main purpose is flying. In the RCAF, often you're learning to fly so that you can go accomplish a mission and use that aircraft as a tool. So the flying part is just a means to an end. The real meat and potatoes of what you're doing is the tactics and employing that aircraft to get the job done. Yeah, and we see that crossover to the civilian side of things a little bit uh, narrower on the helicopter side because there are people who do power line survey, mm. slinging, firefighting, long lining, all of that kind of stuff. is very similar in that you're using the aircraft to accomplish a task. It's not just you're taking off from point A, flying at cruise altitude X to end up at point B with whatever the payload is, but we take that to an extreme in SAR. Mm -hmm. And when you're flying, for an example, when you're flying IFR, IFR is what you do to get to where you are going to do what you need to do. And maybe what you're doing when you finished that to then get home again afterwards. Mm -hmm. So if you have to spend a lot of mental energy flying IFR, then you're not going to have enough mental energy to fly your mission in the middle of your flight and do the thing that you need to be doing, which is potentially a night boat in the dark with fog over the north atlantic with flare illumination and an aircraft somewhere above you and having the brain space to untangle all of those things getting to and from on scene it needs to take 
so little of your bucket that it's not impinging on the other thing that you need to do when you get there. Yeah, for sure. What is the strangest SAR call you've ever gone out to? I've rescued a couple of EPIRBs, which is a beacon, basically. It's E-P-I-R-B. But what it is, is a beacon that is released from a boat after it sinks, potentially. Or in the cases that I've been involved in, it was knocked off or fell off somehow. Enters the water, self-activating, sends a 406 signal up to the SARSAT, comes down to CMCC Trenton, goes across to JRCC Halifax. CMCC is the Canadian Mission Control Center. And they say, we have an EPIRB going off and we need you to go and investigate it and potentially rescue whoever was on the boat that may or may not have sunk. And in both cases, it's just like a can of Folgers, except it's yellow and it has an antenna and uh, it's just bobbing there in the waves because it fell off of a boat. So that's the strangest one I've been involved in. There are also people that have had to find out that they were in a landfill, like the EPIRB had gone off in a landfill after it had been disposed of improperly. Oh, no way. Right. So we're getting, as an organization, as a larger SAR system, a lot better about identifying the fact that it is in a landfill or in a dry dock and not using SAR assets, primary SAR assets, to investigate it as a real emergency. There's some filtering that's happening now. Right, because that's a big use of resources. Absolutely. It's expensive to launch a Hercules and a crew. It's expensive to launch a Cormorant and a crew. And what it means is that asset is potentially unavailable either then or later on for something that's actually going on. That's right. Helicopters can go almost anywhere. What is the coolest location you've ever landed or flown out of? We flew out of Saglik in northern Labrador. It's a disused airfield that was built by the Americans during the war. It was part of the Atlantic crossing routes. Oh, you mean the, the VHF route that you can take? Yeah. So neither of us can remember the name of it, but essentially there was a bunch of stepping stones across the Atlantic from the days when people couldn't fly just directly over the Atlantic Ocean. That's right. Yeah. And it also, it formed part of the defense of North America as well at various points in time. So we were staging out of there and flying into the Torngat Mountains National Park with the permission and cooperation of Parks Canada in order to conduct mountain flying as an exercise. So we would wake up in the morning, go out and fly in those mountains, landing at various locations, and uh, then fly back at the end of the day and stage there again for the following day. And we did that, the squadron did that over a two-week period and sent two crews up. And that was where my helicopter had a run-in with the polar bear one night. Oh. Yeah. Well, you know what? The next question I had was, what's the craziest situation you've ever found yourself in on the cormorant? So I imagine... That's the one. So woke up in the morning and and was told by the AC that our flight engineer had gone down and done the walk around and that the helicopter had been attacked by a polar bear. And I just looked at him and I laughed because I thought he was joking. There's <laughs> yeah. no way this is real, right? Like you got to be pulling my leg. It's you thought like, this was like part of a scenario or something. Absolutely. Or not even so much a scenario as like, uh, let's see if we can get one over on Paul. Right? <laughs> like, is he awake today? Yeah. So turns out it was real. And uh, I sent you... The link to that one, you can find it on the CBC. It's still there. So, And if anyone is interested in seeing some of those articles, we'll be putting the links into the show notes. That was pretty interesting. And the response for how do we now get helicopter parts up to northernmost Labrador was really, it was interesting in retrospect. It was frustrating at the time to watch how the logistics had to unfold in order to get pieces from Greenwood all the way up to Goose Bay and then from Goose Bay all the way up to Saglek. 
Yeah, that sounds like it would be pretty complex. It was a little bit. Um, Triple Four Squadron ended up bailing us out, so that was great of them to do. Um, and uh, it just, again, goes to show that uh, aviation is a team sport. Yeah, absolutely. So you've said to me in the past that you don't get shot at, the weather is your enemy. SAR in the Cormorant means you'll be doing challenging operations in poor conditions. I would imagine that hoisting from a ship in bad weather would be one of the most difficult situations. Can you describe some of the dangers involved and what it feels like? Yeah, that's where you make your money. You're there in the hover. Maybe you have arrived from an overwater transition down, which is allowing and directing and supervising and safeguarding the aircraft automation to bring you down to a hundred foot hover over whatever sea state is underneath you. And you can come within a quarter mile using a radar paint of your target, which in the case that we're talking about here is going to be a boat. A quite large boat, potentially a uh, a shipping vessel, mm. a cargo container vessel, and at that point in time, as long as you can see the hundred feet down to the water and your quarter mile forward, corresponding to your radar paint, a light which is illuminating the target from the target, then you can proceed. I don't know how that sounds to someone who has no experience flying over the water, but to me as an Aurora pilot, that sounds crazy. It's horrifying. Yeah, absolutely. You're like sitting there in the left seat with the AC who probably has done this, you know, 20 or 30 times before in the right seat. And you're looking out the window at that light and going, there's no way, man. Why are we doing this right now? And the answer is to try and save someone. And the helicopter will keep you safe and will allow you if you treat it nicely and use the automation the way it's designed to then close with that vessel until you can fly off of it visually using a rat out hold function to keep the collective in the appropriate position so that the helicopter is going to then descend or climb to an altitude that you've set it to corresponding to how high you want to be over the deck of the vessel while you're hoisting and then the helicopter holds your heading and you are now flying against uh, spring pressures and with the aircraft trimmed out, tracking it in and out along a visual reference line over the vessel, which is moving in the dark. You may or may not have a horizon because maybe the Herc broke that night. Maybe it's there and it's providing you flares, which gives you a horizon inside your ping pong ball. Which mm -hmm. It's a game changer, those flares. And you then will put a live person on that hook in the form of a Sartek, hoist them out to the deck, which again might be rising or falling 30 feet, might be pitching 15, 20 degrees, depending on the sea state, and put them onto the vessel to then go and render medical aid or potentially just put them on the vessel long enough to get someone into a rescue basket and then do the whole thing over again to get them off. So when you're doing your insertion, generally what you do is you insert two Sartek's and a piece of equipment, so that's three move into the rest position, wait for them to do what they need to do because you can't afford to leave the hover because it's such an intense and difficult procedure to arrive back in that position that you're better off just burning the fuel instead of trying to end up burning more fuel anyway to come back to that position. And then you need to then go in, recover a Sartek, the equipment, potentially from the rest if there's good guideline available, and then the second Sartek again. So you're doing this six times in the pitch dark on night vision goggles. So you're looking through toilet paper tubes now, 
down and right, and you are leaning out over your seat, probably three to six inches. Your right shoulder is out of the seat. Your head is probably two inches from the window, and you're looking down at like a 30-degree angle at your references. Hopefully, you have the ability to scan up from time to time underneath your goggles if you're wearing them. Some people tend not to, to look at your horizon, which is supposed to be your primary reference, but let's be honest, maybe it's not there. And you have people who are dangling from a 130-foot piece of cabling with a hook on the end and trying not to bash them off the side of the superstructure on their way up. I just sort of tried to picture myself doing that, and it feels so uncomfortable and so scary. The first time you do that, it must be outrageous. It's daunting. Absolutely. But you don't start in that situation. You end up there. Right. So that's how we get through our upgrade process is to go and be able to do that after maybe less than 500, maybe more like 800 hours on type. When you start out in Comox on the OTF, you do it to the Black Duck, which is, it's like a tugboat sort of situation. And you're doing it in the Georgia Strait, which is a relatively calm body of water because of how confined it is being between Vancouver Island and the mainland. And you are generally doing it with a lot of cultural lighting around, and you're not doing it in fog. There is training limits that apply as opposed to the SAR limits. So you need to crawl before you can walk. You need to walk before you can run. And what I just described to you is running full tilt with your eyes closed in the dark. Yeah. Right? So even when you open them, it's a little disorienting. So that's as bad as it can ever get. It's almost always better than that. How does that feel? It's daunting at first. Absolutely. And when you're there, it's tense and you need to be able to relax enough to be able to do it, right? Like it's all about fine motor control and the interface that you have with the machine. And so you're using your proprioception in your joints. Hopefully you've anchored your wrist to your thigh. You have your feet guarding the pedals, but you're allowing the aircraft to fly your heading. You have your hand on the collective but really it's the aircraft keeping you out of the water. So all you need to think about now is moving your fingertips and you just think forward and right. And it doesn't matter that the boat is pitching, bobbing and weaving. You're just flying your line in. Mm -hmm. And as long as you can keep the helicopter steady and just make those fine movements as you're doing it, everything is going to be a lot smoother. It's when you start overthinking it. It's when you tense up and allow gross motor control to take over. That's when things start to go sideways and people can get hurt. Yeah, that just sounds crazy. As a fixed wing guy and as someone whose distances are normally measured in hundreds of feet above the water and much larger fractions of a mile from a vessel, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, so from a fishing vessel or like the Coast Guard cutters, we tend to, for, uh, for hoisting be 35 feet off the water when you're doing a boat to something that small, simply to maintain visual references. Wow. Because when you lose those visual references, you lose the ability to not hit the boat for sure. Right. And we've had it before, and I was in the back of the helicopter where we have settled onto a fiberglass antenna and punctured a fuel cell. To my knowledge, that's only happened once in the history of flying cormorants. But frankly, I'm surprised that we don't hit more boats more often. And it comes down to the training that we are provided and the ability to practice that we're given and you know when you're coming up to a boat whether today is going to be a good day or not based on how tense you're feeling and based on how your reaction to the conditions are going 
And there are situations where you just won't put a StarTech on the hook for training because it's not worth it. So if you can get some dry runs, not even necessarily putting the empty hook down, maybe that's what you need for the night. Maybe that's your small victory. And every little bit helps, right? It's all about making sure that everyone can come home in one piece at the end of the day. And for training, there are some risks that just aren't acceptable. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, we just touched on this a little bit when you talked about sometimes the training you get is not the training you expected, but it can be enough. You've mentioned to me that in SAR, even if the outcome isn't what we were looking for, the mission can still be successful. Can you give me an example of this? Yeah, so one of the missions that I flew, we went out to the easternmost part of southern Quebec, and we were looking for uh, someone who had been fishing from shore, and we didn't end up finding them. They had tied themselves to an anchor point. It was like a lobster pot that had been weighted down, and we ended up finding that. And it was night, it was dark, we were able to be high enough and shine our light down enough, and there was enough light that night as well that on the MVGs we could see the bottom quite clearly, and all the way to the drop-off we were able to crawl around at 100-130 feet, looking straight down using the night sun, determined positively that they just weren't there anymore. And the night sun is like a super bright spotlight, right? Absolutely, yeah. It's bright enough that one of the things that you can't do is refuel the helicopter if it's been on within 30 minutes. Because of the heat it generates? Because of the heat it generates. Wow. Yeah. So even though we didn't find that gentleman that night, we were able to say that he wasn't there anymore. Search is accomplished. Rescue just couldn't happen. Mm -hmm. And that's frustrating, but sometimes that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. And the reason for the listeners, if I'm interpreting this correctly, the reason that that can still be a somewhat positive mission outcome is because without that certainty, the search may go on for days, weeks, depending on, I'm assuming, various conditions. And the search can end up using assets and people for a much longer period of time, even though it's very unlikely that you will find that person. Right. And more than that, it's about the people that they've left behind. So we are able to say positively, we found what he was using to anchor himself, and he wasn't attached to it anymore. And if he's not back on shore, then he's somewhere else. Yeah. And that's really sad to have to say to someone, and I'm glad that I'm not in the position and haven't been in the position to have to do that to someone directly, but that's effectively the conclusion that I came to mm -hmm. and the information that I had to relay through RCC. And ultimately, that hopefully provides a little bit of closure. Mm -hmm. A measure of closure. That's right. Instead of just wondering. Yeah. And so when he doesn't come home and the SQ are out and they're scouring the shoreline and he's not on the shoreline. What's the SQ? Uh, the Chute de Quebec. It's okay. the provincial police force. And when they've scoured the shoreline and he's not on the shoreline and the boats have been out and they haven't found him and the helicopter's been out and they see what's on the bottom that no one else has been able to get to or look at yet, then hopefully there aren't any more lingering questions. Mm. What would you say are the most memorable flights you've had on the Cormorant? The ones where you take someone who you know would have died and successfully relay them to the next level of care. There are people who hand on heart, I can say that I and the crew directly participated in saving their life for real, not hypothetically. That's pretty amazing. It is. And that is job satisfaction. That's as good as it gets. Mm -hmm. Those for me are the flights that are most memorable. Is when I can look back at it and think, 
yeah, we did that. That's awesome. Yeah. What is the best day you've ever had in the cormorant? We had gone out to the Italy Melee and taken a young boy who was potentially having acute appendicitis from an outlying island to the main island. It was uh, from a nursing station to a hospital sort of situation where we were increasing the level of care he was going to be received so he could be assessed properly. And hearing from the guys in the back just how stoked he was to be on the helicopter and how it was such a big deal for him and his parents to be on board and to be able to give that to them where they wouldn't have been able to get across on a boat that night because of the weather and just realizing that we were able to do that for them. Yeah. So just giving them that positive experience and it's kind of interesting. It's a combination of like, you know, they got to enjoy the ride, but also they're able to have that weight off their shoulders of, is our son going to be okay? Are we going to be able to get him proper medical care? You guys were able to provide that. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, looking in retrospect, he was going to be fine. And from the way that he was behaving on the aircraft, it was clear to the Sartex that that wasn't what was going on. But if it had been, or if it had been allowed to develop into that, then him being off of that island that night, instead of after the storm had been through, whether it was the next day or the day after that, could have made a huge difference. Mm -hmm. What is the hardest day you've ever had on the Cormorant? There was a mission where we did where there was a fishing vessel that was sinking, uh, the Mucktown Girl, and it was off of the coast of Canso in Nova Scotia, sort of south and east of Cape Breton. And um, it had been towed by the Canadian Coast Guard, and the tow line broke because of the conditions. And it started taking on water, and so everyone zipped up their immersion suits and hopped into the life raft. And then while they were getting off of the life raft and onto the Coast Guard vessel, four of them made it onto the deck and one of them made it into the water. And we found him, which is good. But when we took him out of the water and brought him into the cabin and the Sartex were doing CPR on him in the back, that's when it became real that you know, not everyone that we bring into the helicopter is going to walk off of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was a challenging day for me. It was a challenging day for the Sartex in the back and it, just the randomness of it. That's what I think I had, a, had trouble with the most was, you know, why was it this guy? Why didn't he make it onto the deck? Yeah, because they were basically home free. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. After a bunch of really crazy incidents. That's right. And then we ended up, we were going anyway because they like to be proactive with getting a cormorant into the air. Like I said, we have two hours to do it. And then we have whatever transit time it's going to take to get there. So by the time this vessel needing a tow turns into the situation where there's a man in the water now, if enough time has elapsed, then the outcome isn't always guaranteed. And that's sort of what we ran into that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And it, it comes back to the idea that you can't save everybody and struggling with that early on and reframing it made dealing with that incident earlier, but it still took some time to work through. Yeah. How did you work through that incident in particular? That one in particular, I took a day off. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. When you're a shift worker, you end up with days that you can sort of place on the schedule as days off where if you were meant to be in the office, you're not. 
you use one of the days that you're out instead. And I just went and spent time with the family. And that's what it's always been for me is um, not getting away from work or disconnecting from work necessarily as as the solution to these things, but just getting the break and taking the pause that you need to be able to come back to it fully. Yeah. As we've been talking about, unfortunately, USAR folks do see times where people don't make it. What is the most preventable way you see people lose their lives? It comes back to life jackets and the decision whether or not to wear them. For me, it's an easy yes. And I don't know where the line is between being on a ferry in BC where I don't actually need a life jacket and Mm -hmm. I'm comfortable walking around on that boat not needing one and being in a kayak. And it just boggles my mind to see people paddling around national parks without wearing them or canoeists sitting on them to make a cushion because, Mm -hmm. you know, the seat of their canoe is hard and it's hurting their butt. There, I know people who have drowned because they weren't wearing their life jackets. And I've searched for people all night who have drowned because they weren't wearing their life jackets. And it's a topic of conversation that happens a lot in the cockpit and in the lines of the SAR units when you go out and you're looking for someone who's fallen overboard. And it's like, well, were they wearing their life jacket? And you just, you feel for the family of these people who end up in the water they're not wearing a life jacket it's the north atlantic like it's got to be four degrees maybe yeah and you know it could get up double digits later on in the year like in the summertime but it's an unforgiving environment and not choosing to do everything you can to get out of that water just doesn't make sense to me yeah we used to get briefed on the survival times before every mission we flew over the atlantic and without a survival suit a lot of the year it's minutes so if you aren't wearing a life jacket and you can't be easily recovered you're in trouble and something that people don't think about is the gasping reflex right so if you're not floating while you're gasping it's not going to go well for you Mm. so if you can keep your head above the water by wearing a life jacket for long enough to get your first scream out And if you're in the water for 15 minutes while the boat's going the wrong way and someone notices and then they turn around, your odds are way better than waiting for a cormorant to come and find you in the middle of the night. It's just not going to go well. Yeah. All right. We're going to switch to a little bit of a lighter, lighter fare. In 30 seconds or less, if I'm a pilot in training, why should I want to fly the cormorant? What makes it unique and who would it appeal to? The direct impact that you can have on people's lives is huge for job satisfaction and if that appeals to you i don't need to say anything else if you want another reason it's the largest helicopter that i know of that someone was going to give the keys to you and say go have lunch with your crew that's awesome yep we're down to the last three questions we always ask these questions What is the most important thing you do to keep yourself ready for your job? Everyone talks about getting in the books, and that's true, so I'm going to pick something different. Get the rest you need and get the recharge that you need. When we have the opportunity to take vacation, I always do. When we have the opportunity to do things as a family, I always do. And in SAR, where shift work is challenging to manage sometimes in terms of family obligations, in terms of lining up with regular weekends. You need to take those opportunities with two hands and make the most of them. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I've always made a conscious effort to do. And I think it served me really well. And I recommend it to anyone. 
take the time you can with your family to do everything that you can together. Yeah. You can't say this enough. The job in the Air Force, it's never ending. And if you're not careful, it will take over your life. You are responsible for setting those boundaries and for making sure that you're striking a balance because there's always going to be a call for you to come in and do the job. You have to make sure that you're balancing that. That's right. And give that same ability to the people who work for you. <laughs> That's a really good point. What do you think makes a good pilot? The trick, and I'm still learning it, of knowing when your best that day isn't going to be good enough that day. If you wake up and you're tired, maybe you can push through. Maybe it's a bad idea. That's a judgment call. Mm -hmm. And you want to put yourself in a situation where you don't need your superior skill to get you out of a situation that your judgment put you in. Mm. Yeah, I've heard that saying before, and it's such a good one. Everyone wants to be a hotshot pilot. We all want to work hard and be the best in the business. But hopefully, like you've said, you're not putting yourself in a position where you're using everything you have because all it takes is a little extra and now everything you have is not enough. Yep. Yeah, that's right. That's not to say that you need to be at 110% every day when you walk into work. Like there are days where, you know, 90% is all you have and 90% is going to be fine. But you need to know when that 90% is not going to be enough. Mm -hmm. Which is a real check your ego kind of situation. Yeah. Staying humble is, is key. Yeah. Yeah. And like we say, aviation is a team sport. If you need to call someone up to fill the roster instead of you, then do it. All right, we're down to our last question. I want you to picture a young pilot, maybe one of the pilots you'll be teaching soon at the school. If you had to give advice to a new pilot, what would that be? Don't leave anything on the table. When you are in training, the single most important thing that you can do is decide that your training is important. If you're going through it and you're wishy-washy about it, or if you're going through it and you decide, you know what, maybe I don't need to study for that test, <laughs> it's going to bite you. And you don't want to be the guy who at the end of the day has questions, you know, did I work hard enough for this? You want to work as hard as you need to every time you need to and show up ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. There is no room for doing it halfway. That's right. Okay, that's it for our questions today, Paul. I just want to thank you so much for being here. Uh, I really enjoyed learning more about what you folks do in the Cormorant. Uh, I feel humbled thinking about some of the things that you take on. And yeah, just thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks, Brian. All right, that's going to wrap things up for our chat with Paul about search and rescue on the Cormorant. For our next episode, we'll check back in with our guest from episode 15, Scott Harding. At the time, Scott was on phase one Grobe. He has now completed phase two as well as his phase three multi-engine course. So we'll find out what life was like for him as a student and where he's heading next. Do you have any questions or comments about anything you've heard on the show? Or would you or someone you know make a great guest? Do you have some great ideas for a show? You can reach out to us at thepilotprojectpodcast at gmail.com. We'd also love for you to check out our social media where we post videos for every episode we make featuring footage from RCAF aircrew and members, and those are all found at at Pod Pilot Project. It's hard to believe, but we have been putting out the show now for one year. We just want to thank all of our listeners for coming along on this adventure with us. It has been humbling. It has been a learning experience, but it has been so much fun. 
And without you, the show would really be meaningless. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for joining us. With that, we will close by asking for your help with the big three. That's like and follow us on social media, share with your friends, and follow and rate us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Keep the blue side up. See ya! Engineer, shut down all four. Shutting down all four engines.